0: You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. I can definitively say the president's not a liar, and I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying Trump is bad for the country.
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the rowdy Roddy Piper in the White House ring who jumps into Twitter most mornings in a sumo G-string ready to rumble. Last week, everyone's favorite heel took to Twitter to attack Jumpin' Joe and Marvelous Mika. Those are wrestling heroes, by the way. And the crowd went wild. There was much analysis of Rowdy Roddy Trump's technique and, of course, shocked Shockedness that he would ever stoop so low as to criticize anyone's sanity, intelligence, or appearance. Can you imagine? But did that tweet rattle anyone but the Twittering classes? My guest today to discuss how Capitol Hill responds to our radioactive sumo president is Ashley Parker of the Washington Post. She's been watching the mysterious Republicans for signs that they're getting disgusted with this president or maybe they're playing it cool, biding their time, freaking out or, or just putting heavy makeup on their hives. She's a Pence watcher like I am and even has some thoughts on whether the vice president might be brooding about what's next for him if if the president gets if well, just if we'll be back with Ashley in a minute. Joining me on the line is Ashley Parker. Ashley is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. She appeared in one of my very, very favorite memes responding to Sean Spicer's weird mangling of a story about the Holocaust, of all things. You've got to check that gif out. For now, welcome, Ashley. Thanks for having me. So you are now a White House reporter for The Washington Post, but you were um, at The New York Times, and I think we overlapped there. I was. We did,
0: yeah. (laughs) I was a big fan of yours. I mean, I still am a big fan of yours, but we were colleagues, and I was a fan.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, back at you, I think I was writing about Tila Tequila and Gangnam Style, (laughs) and you were writing about presidential elections in Congress. Fortunately... Today's atmosphere, we ha- that means we have a lot in common. <laughs>
0: That's true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you have written, co-written pieces recently about some of the Republicans, some of all the president's men, including Mike Pence. Why don't we, before we get to the more salacious story about the president's tweets, why don't we talk about, about Mike Pence's shakeup with his staff?
0: Sure, um, it's funny because I've been following Mike Pence's sort of been a subbeat of mine. So when I saw that, you know, I was like, "Shake up, huge news!" And because it's Mike Pence, just nobody cared. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I like imagine I'm a- if Reince was out, right? I God. mean, just like the level
1: of interest is. So stark. Well, let's I mean, I share your interest in Pence. So let's let's uh, let's presume <laughs> Good, <thank> too <laughs> much, too much Pence interest in, in listeners. He shook up his staff. What that was Thursday, last Thursday? Um,
0: yeah. So they announced on Thursday, um, although they've been discussing it for about a month and had made a decision about a week and a half ago. And basically what they're doing is his chief of staff is this guy, Josh Pitcock, uh, very mild mannered, very nice, soft spoken, very loyal, very well liked. He is out. <laughs> and uh, Nick Ayers, who is this much more sort of hard charging Republican operator, um, who also had a role on the campaign just like Josh did, um, and at the, recently was chairman of this outside Pence leadership pack and was on the board of this other pro Trump super PAC, the one that went up against uh, Senator Heller in Nevada, he is coming in. Um, and what I make of that, because I had reported a Pence profile about a month. A couple of weeks before, and I had heard some rumblings of this shakeup, is the real reason this change is happening is that the vice president has gotten stuck in a couple of pretty uncomfortable situations since joining the White House, where he either looks like he is lying to the American people or being totally left in the dark by the president in the White House, neither one of which is a good luck, right? So there was the incident where Flynn misled the vice president about his contacts with a Russians, something that the vice president only learned about actually in a Washington Post report. Mm-hmm. Um, the White House knew for about two weeks and never bothered to read him in. Um, and then more recently, there was this instance with uh, the president's decision to fire Comey, where the vice president went out and kind of echoed the White House talking point that the president did it because Rod Rosen... Stein had sent him this memo and that's what the president was doing. And less than 24 hours later, the president comes out and says, that's not why I did it. <laughs> I did it because I wanted to fire Comey for a while. And, you know, he's been such a pain with Russia. <laughs> so anyhow, <laughs> there was this sense that the vice president was being ill-served by not having sort of an attack dog on his staff, someone who could, you know, stand up to the the West Wing um, and sort of advocate for the vice president and say, wait a minute, you know that Vice President Pence is incredibly loyal, but he is not going to go out on TV and say this talking point that you and I both know is, A, not true, and B, the president is probably going to contradict in just 24 hours.
1: Yeah. I I hadn't sort of somehow hadn't connected, but probably because it got lost in the storm, hadn't connected the... um The Flynn firing and the Comey firing and then Pence's seeming, you know, out of the loop or just not included or not included or directly contradicted um, in the explanations for those firings. But the first time around with Flynn, Flynn's having lied to the vice president was given as the pretext for his firing, which made it seem as though. Trump was really had Pence under his wing, like Tr- Pence's honor. Pence is so clean. Pence, you know, shouldn't get sullied by these um, Flynn-like deceptions. But then, then he went back to straight up contradicting him. And you know, I don't, I don't think I've heard the president mention Pence <laughs> in in a long time. He, he just doesn't seem to be in his field of vision currently.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think it's a, here's the thing. It's yeah. a nuanced relationship. In that one thing that seems clear is that like. The president does trust the vice president, which is tough to do. It it is hard to start from basically zero. You know, when he came on as the number two pick during the campaign, and earn the president's trust, <laughs> and he's done that with sort of basic, just like pure deferential, over the top loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and deference. So there is, there is sort of like a warm relationship between them. I've heard that from both sides, and I, hmm. I believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, the president likes that Pence is not only not going to leak, he's one of the few power centers in the White House that doesn't leak, but he also likes that Pence is not going to take credit for anything the president does. And Pence is even really going to take credit for anything Pence does. Um, so he likes all of that. But he's, you know, so it's a warm relationship. It is never going to be this super close, bro relationship, in part because, you know, one thing that that makes the president respect you and treat you like a peer is money, right? Like, mm. he respects people who are as wealthy or wealthier than he is. Hmm. And that is not Mike Pence. <laughs> I, I,
1: I feel like I'm always optimistic about this, but is there a chance that <laughs> Pence is thinking about the value voters that took him to the governor's mansion in Indiana, that he's thinking about that old, you know, values-driven, family values-driven conservatism that supposedly is first on his list with God in what interests him. And, and does he, when we have something like uh, Trump's recent tweet um, mm-hmm. savaging Mika Brzezinski, does he ever look at the circus World Wrestling Federation um, lechery of the president <laughs> and just shudder or worry at least that it will hurt him with his constituency, if not his God? I mean, he
0: he basically starting with the campaign has just made this calculation or or deal or agreement with himself um, that he is just going to be loyal to the president no matter what happens. I think politically, he thinks, that, at least for now, that's something that serves him well. I think he's done a miraculously good job of walking this really, really fine line where he never criticizes the president, never, ever comes out against him, um, even, in, even in private, from... Dozens of people I've talked to, he never even shows like that sort of like raised eyebrow or, you know, wry smile that he's sort of in on the joke. Um, So if he does feel that way, he certainly doesn't betray it uh, publicly or privately. Um, But he has sort of... On these sorts of issues, like during the Access Hollywood uh, tape during the campaign, he'll never really criticize the president, but he he finds a way to sort of not quite as vociferously defend him. And it's a fine line, and I don't know how long he can keep walking it, and I don't know what the ramifications will be. Um, but for now, that's sort of like where they've tied their, their ship to, and they're sticking to it. Is
1: there any any chance that he or someone near him, including this new the new chief of staff, is thinking about what might happen if the president were impeached? I got it. I mean, Uh, it's like one of those. I got to ask you.
0: I, I will say this. I, I mean they will all claim publicly that they are not thinking about, you know, anything other than serving uh, the president. Um, and they would claim the impeachment hasn't even crossed their mind. But yes, absolutely, there are one hundred percent people in his orbit who are thinking about Mike Pence's political future deeply. And the question is is whether that's sooner than anyone would imagine, whether that's after President Trump has served two terms, whether that's in twenty twenty, if for some reason Donald Trump decides not to run, they are deeply aware of his political future and how everything the vice president does fits into that even though they would deny that I got <laughs> it tomorrow
1: I, I gotta wonder if he is studying the uh, Gerald Ford pardon playbook <laughs> um, <laughs> so um if, what about other Republicans I mean I it interested me I'm gonna say what uh um, one of the late night talk shows said about the um Mika Brzezinski tweet I can't I just can't I can't even quote it. You know, it's just, it's, (laughs) they have a new department called I Can't. Um, But in any case, you know, this is the president saying last week that Morning Joe was, is the low-rated show, um, and that Mika Brzezinski has a low IQ, and uh, Joe Scarborough is crazy, and also described her as um, bleeding from her face, and eager to get to Mar-a-Lago, and so forth. So, um, you know, a lot has been made of this, and it, it sort of has an Access Hollywood style Vibe, and you probably know that the liberal lying media tends to worry that one of these one of these outbursts of shocked shockedness from some Republicans will have only that short arc that it had with Access Hollywood. That you know they make a lot of noise, but then they go back and fall in line like Pence. You have right. done yeah. reporting that suggests that that Republicans, at least in Congress, are are not inclined, are disinclined now, are increasingly disinclined to simply fall back in line and be good soldiers.
0: Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, I think, for instance, on an issue like health care, Susan Collins said this publicly. A lot of senators have said this. They're not going to vote or not vote for a bill, um, you know, based on because they're angry with the president for a tweet. Right. That would be irresponsible. Um, But one of the things we wrote in our story is that one of the reasons the president is. And we had a lot of members of Congress on the record telling us this is that one of the reasons the president is having a lot of trouble actually legislating, is because an increasing number of lawmakers either don't fear him and don't respect him. So, again, if there's a bill that, say, Senator Collins thinks is a great bill that would really help her constituents, um, you know, she's going to vote for it no matter how disgusted she happens to be with a recent tweet. And by the same token, even if she has the most warm relationship with a with president, she's not going to vote for something that she thinks would, you know, in her mind, hurt millions of Americans, right? That's, that's just a reality. But there is an element of, of deal making to legislating that the president should understand, and his job is just a lot harder when a lot of these members are frustrated and and disgusted by his behavior. Mm. Um, and and they don't fear him. I mean, he he can he can tweet this stuff. He can tweet nasty personal broadsides. I think they're upset because, as they all said, it diminishes the office it's beneath the dignity it embarrasses the country um, but you know so what he he tweeted something mean about Mika's Base, right, like the world goes on, and if you tweeted something personal about one of these senators, I just don't think they would be cowed as much anymore
1: Well, th- right I mean he's he's already done so with the uh, you know with Rubio and Cruz and the other his other opponents in the primary and then and life goes on as you say. I mean it's interesting because I've so- always seen that as they're sucking it up, you know they're like <laughs> they're they're deceived by him, but maybe it's just like it, you know that's the clown side, and he's lost any hold they he had over them if he ever did. Um yeah, yeah. I mean, they're
0: sort of able to compartmentalize it a little bit. I think the thing that hurts him more, to be honest, is that he doesn't seem to understand. I mean, he's not a policy wonk. Um, that's not what his passion is. But especially for some of these senators, you know, he doesn't seem to always know they come away, at least some of them with the impression that he doesn't quite know what's in the bill. And when you really get down to negotiating health care, it actually becomes policy negotiation, right? Like a lot of these senators have specific policy issues or specific policy impacts in their home states across the nation, which is the reason they feel like they can't get on board. And so the president would be a lot better dealmaker, legislator, whatever you want to call it, if he was able to sort of talk policy, understand their concerns, and come up with a, with a counter bill or, or plan that makes sense. Yeah,
1: the, the show the the showbiz and the World Wrestling Federation language doesn't seem to work so well sometimes with uh, with either you know more um, staid senators who you know pride themselves on a certain regal detachment or with some like rough and tumble alpha male congressmen, including you have this great moment in the in the uh, Washington Post piece last week about Joe Barton um who um yep. <laughs> yeah who so this is a republican um, congressman from Texas and he was what approached by Steve Bannon or at least he heard Steve Bannon sort of you know try to try to bully bully congress into um or the freedom caucus members into right. um voting for the <laughs> The health care legislation.
0: Right. And he has sort of responded, you know, nobody tells me what to do except my daddy. And <laughs> even he doesn't tell me what to do. Um, and e- even even if we're just going back to the first time health care came up in the House and, and failed, one of... I don't know if it would be an irony, but one thing that was kind of interesting was like a lot of these Freedom Caucus members loved the president. Right. Like they they liked him. They thought he was a cool guy. They loved spending time with him. They would have loved nothing more for him to campaign in their district. But at the end of the day, for some of them, it again actually came back down to policy. Right. That like they believed that the bill did not cut enough money um, on, on the healthcare care front, um, and that, you know, premiums were still too high. And it was they loved President Trump, but they still weren't going to vote for this thing as fiscal conservatives. Yeah, well, so that's something that interests me. I, if you
1: have some, you know, people like Joe Barton and the Freedom Caucus and, and, um, and others sort of on the libertarian end of things, or, and then you have the Pence's on the values voter side. I mean, are any of them feeling or who, let's say, are just feeling squeamish that they have like really they're beginning to or there are too many invitations to sell out their, you know, their core. I would say their core beliefs, but let's just be a little more cynical, their core brands, you know.
0: Well, one group of people I can tell you who is very frustrated were sort of some of these moderate House members who, you know, are in tough districts um, and took a really tough vote to get healthcare across the line in the house the second time around. And then the president comes out and he, you know, and he basically says the House bill was too mean, right? So every single one of those Republicans who is in a tough race, they know that the first ad that will go up against them is, you know, so-and-so voted for this health care bill. And even the president says it's too mean. Mm, right. <laughs> and, right. And, and, and so after that, I heard a lot of them were, they sort of became, in, in the word of uh, one Republican who I was speaking with, sort of free agents. They're not going to go out and trash the president because he's popular with their base, They're not going to tie themselves to him because they're in swing districts. There's a lot of people who have concerns about him, don't like him, but they sort of feel like free agents to be able to, you know, the old adage, vote their district, vote their conscience.
1: So what are they? The other thing is, are they taking the temperature of things every, you know, every day? And of course, I'm referring to the Mueller investigation, but are they watching any of this? The tweets? It just it seems like Congress is they just seem so sphinx like to me. Like, I don't know if they feel miserable the way uh, White House staffers do because they leak much more. And, you know, and we have at least in the in the more distant media, not not the you, you know, right up there reporting on the White House. But, you know, some of us have the impression that these people are in prison and they're calling us out to like come save them or they're like sending little smoke signals to Robert Mueller. But that's not Congress sometimes maybe. I mean, the way you guys represent it seems like they're up to business as usual, you know, in some ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah, much more so. They're certainly isolated from some of peak chaos in the West Wing. Um, But I do think some of them, you know, especially leadership will sort of privately admit that it feels like they're living in this bizarro world, right? Because they have the Senate, they have the House they have the White House. (laughs) And, you know, Paul Ryan sort of thought like, all right, like now it's time to implement my agenda. This is what I ran on. And and it turned out like you know, the White House's attitude was like, you didn't win, your better way agenda didn't win, like we won, and we carried a lot of you on our coattails, <laughs> and we're going to do what we think is best. So all of these plans, you know, best, ca- and, and to be clear, some of these were plans they didn't have, right? I covered the 113th Congress, where what the House did was over a dozen times voted to, you know, repeal Obamacare, right? So in theory, when they suddenly had control, of the White House in control of, both houses, they should have actually had had a plan ready to go that their members could agree on. <laughs> but on some other issues, they actually did have some real policy lined up. Um, but, you know, you, you can't do it if that's not what, A, the president wants to do, or B, if the president's always distracting with other things. So there's a sense of disappointment, um, I think.
1: Now, what if, and I, I, I'm going to let you go because you you're covering um, Superstorm Trump right now. <laughs> um, so let's say the Mika Brzezinski tweet, or some other buffoonish gaffe, not, sure. you know, not more evidence of collusion or not, you know, the Muslim ban getting more robust, but but something like the kind of reality TV style gaffe that, you know, Twitter goes crazy for and, the, and cable news is swamped with for days. What if that really did seem to be a kind of last draw for, I guess, for, for popular opinion? Are there people in Congress that are kind of have their finger on the impeachment button at all? That are thinking, okay, that's it. That's it for me.
0: Republicans? Yeah. I don't I don't think so. Oh my God. I think I, I think always I... ask these like
1: <laughs> the producers looking at me like you <laughs> always try. <laughs> I d
0: I don't think so. I think the time to check back would be like after the midterms if let's say they somehow lose the House or they do really poorly, um, then I think you might see opinion really shift. But I think now the attitude, for instance, in the White House, the attitude has shifted from, you know, how can we get him to stop tweeting? How can we contain him to more? It's just like, Trump's going to Trump. He's going to do what he's going to do. Like, he's a 70-year-old man. He's not going to change. Like, they're just resigned to, like, dealing with it, explaining it away, handling the fallout. And I think on the Hill, there is some element of like, look, this isn't the hand we would have chosen. I mean, I spoke with one Republican senator off the record who said like, look, Trump wouldn't have been my first choice. He actually wouldn't have even been my 14th choice. But, you know, look, you know, this guy said he's, I believe he's better than Hillary Clinton would be, and they're sort of trying to make the best of the hand they've been dealt.
1: Aren't we all? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Thank you very, very much for being here, Ashley.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: And that's our show for today. But before we take off, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? Are you just following those Johnny-come-lately political podcasts that copied the first, the only, the original... TrumpCast, except no substitutes, and follow us at Real TrumpCast, not knockoff TrumpCast on Twitter. Follow us at Real TrumpCast, where you can find the whole TrumpCast crew. That's Jacob, Jamel, me, John Domenico. We are at Real TrumpCast. That's at Real Trumpcast, and it's the best way to keep up with all the things we have going on here. Also, be sure to tune into Amicus. It's a show hosted by the great. Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate. She is amazing. And for all the things you need to know about the Supreme Court, tune into Amicus. You can find it at slate.com slash amicus. That's slate.com slash amicus. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.